Hi, thank you so much for tuning into this Bible study. Whether you're listening uh, to the podcast or watching the video, thank you for joining us. We are going through the book of Acts. Acts is the sixth book, excuse me, fifth book in the New Testament. You have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, which those are the Gospels of those uh, disciples of Jesus that wrote down their, their story of what life was like with Jesus, the words that he said, the things that he did. Then the first book after that is the book of Acts. It's written by Luke. It's basically like Luke take two. Uh, Luke wrote the book of Luke, and then he just paused and then picked it up right at uh, Acts chapter one. So with Acts, we are seeing the Acts of the Apostles, but more appropriately, I would call it the Acts of Apostolic Men. Specifically, we see the works of Peter, and soon enough, we are going to meet Paul, who is another uh, apostle, that we are going to see um, the Acts of um, Paul and what he does. And it is the book of Acts is the foundation of the church. And what we're going to be looking at today, we're going through Acts chapter 4, and we are going to see um, a major issue come up that the Holy Spirit deals with very harshly in the early church. But this is also an issue that still faces the church to this very day, and that is one of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, pride, greed, deception, all of those things are, it, as long as you have people in the church, you are going to have issues with those elements. And we're going to see that come up today. There's two things we're going to be looking at today as it, as it relates to Acts chapter 5. Um, the first is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and then we're going to look at the second half of chapter 5, which deals more with um, a fulfillment of the prayer that the early church uh, prayed to God for boldness and for healing and for people to turn to Jesus. That was the closing prayer that we heard the early church um, pray right at the end of the study that we just did last week on Acts chapter 4. Um, specifically, that's Acts 4.29, and we'll come back to that. We see God honor that prayer, and you see the fulfillment of that prayer in the disciples going and preaching with boldness but we also do see, as a result of that boldness, persecution that comes on the early church. And it's going to continue. And it still continues to this very day. The persecution that started back then with the early church isn't going to go away until Jesus comes back. So that is what we're going to be studying today and looking at Acts chapter 5. But before we open it up, uh, why don't you bow your heads and let's pray for, some, uh, for God to be with us as we go through this. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that you bless this time for those people who are listening or watching and that you will soften their hearts and open their ears and that you will speak through me. Teach us, Lord. We are here with open minds and open ears to learn more about you and your character. Lord, speak through me. Be here with us. We love you, Lord, and we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so why don't you guys open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Where if you recall, we actually cut it off at uh, Acts 4.31 was the last passage that we looked at last week. And the reason being is, is that I believe Acts 4.32 through the end of chapter 4 uh, plays in perfectly with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. 
and that if you were to do the break the way they have it broken up, you would miss that um, introduction that is critical. So we're actually gonna pick it up on Acts 4, 32. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possession were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there, was, that there were no needy persons among them. <clears throat> Excuse me. For from the time, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So I'm going to pause right there. Does this say, so what you see here is, is this is the, the early church. We know um, that there's roughly 5,000 believers at this point, but we know that a lot of the disciples uh, living in Jerusalem are from Galilee. They're from different regions. They don't live in Jerusalem, so they are homeless, more or less. And a lot of the people who are the, the early apostles of the church that are living and breathing this full time um, well, they're not working. They are vocationally doing ministry every single day. Now, that 5,000, I would argue that the majority of that 5,000 that are believers of the early church, they're all working. They're all living their lives and doing different things, but they are giving to the early church in order that those who don't have homes um, and, and don't have any uh, sustenance, aren't working at all, um, can be able to survive. Does this mean that we today are called to start up a hippie commune and that we are all, is the Bible supporting um, communism? Is, is that what is happening here? Is the Bible supporting communism? Is the Bible saying that, well, the, the believers were all together and no one had any possessions. They sold everything that they had and they all gave it and they collectively were one unit. Should we all go and start a hippie commune? No, I don't believe that is what the Bible is saying. I think the Bible is showing the fact that those who had a lot gave to those who were in need so that they could all do the work that the Holy Spirit had for them. I would say that is a calling that we have today. Does it mean that I need to sell my house, my car, everything that I own and give it to my church and then have nothing, have no house, no home and just rely on the Holy Spirit? God calls you to that. I would really, really pray over that and, and make sure that you get multiple different um, instances of God backing that up that he's calling you to do that. I would argue that we are so abundantly blessed in this country that even if you are in the lowest 10% in this country uh, living on food stamps and poverty, you are still in the top 20% of the population of the world in the wealth that you have. So because of that, I don't think that we're called to do that. And I am talking about this way too long. The point being is simply that people who had possessions were giving of those possessions to those who had need. Now we see a specific story, and that is of uh, Barnabas. Uh, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. 
So this is a specific example of what specifically Barnabas does. Now one side note here, he's a Levite. Now one important element is that the Levitical law, the Levites were supposed to be the, the priests, the Levitical priesthood in the tabernacle and Levites were also called not to possess land. It's an interesting little fact. So I would argue that Barnabas becomes a believer and starts uh, living the Christian life and realizes that, you know what, first of all, as the Levitical system, I'm not even supposed to own land. And you know what, what's mine is God's and God has needed this, so I'm gonna sell my land and I'm gonna give it to the church. And he does this, which is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing that he does this. Now the question is, I would argue that he was probably um, encouraged and probably had the early church. Peter was probably like, yes, Barnabas, you're awesome, you rock. Everybody look at Barnabas, this is so awesome what he's doing, thank you Barnabas. And he was probably lifted up because of the, the sacrifice he made in selling the plot of land and giving the money. Now we go on to Acts chapter five. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now here's the question. What was the sin? What was the problem? What was the bad thing that Ananias and Sapphira did? They owned a plot of land. They made the decision to sell the land and take the money and give the money to the early church. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. That is great. The problem that we are going to see as we dig into this is two different elements, I would argue. One is a question of motivation. Why did they do this? The other is the, the fact that they lied. So they told Peter and the early church, they told them or acted as if they were giving the full amount. They did not disclose that they were keeping some of it. You follow? So, so they were lying, which tells me, when you listen to the story, that their motivation was not a good motivation. They wanted the praise that Barnabas got. They see the early church and like, Barnabas, dude, man, you rock. Thank you so much for selling your land. And Ananias is like, I want to rock too. I want to be cool like him. I want the praise that he has. So let's sell our land. But then in his heart, he's saying, well, it's my land. So I want to keep some of the money. So I'm going to keep some of the money. Well, here's a question. Could he have kept some of the money? Yeah, I would argue, yes, it's his land. He can do what he wants with it. And he is surrendering himself to the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if the Holy Spirit even guided him or called him to even sell his land. But he and his wife sell the land and then they go and act as if they are giving 100% of it to the early church. This is hypocrisy. This is deceit. This is pride. This is doing something for the acknowledgement of others and not doing it for the right reason, not doing it because it's something that God called them to do, but doing it because they want to get the accolades from it and they want to look like good Christians, but they're not acting like good Christians. And this is a huge issue. The church is brand new, brand new. And 
we're going to see the Holy Spirit weed this out and show how he feels about hypocrisy and deceit. Continuing on, verse 3, Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down dead. And a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some of the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Did you pay this amount, the amount that you gave me? Is this all of it? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is one of those stories that you read in the Bible where you're like, wait, what? What? Okay, so they sell a plot of land that they own and they give the money to the church and then God kills them on the spot? What? Why? I mean, I've done such worse things than that. Why am I not stricken dead instantly? And why? why? Why does this happen? There are examples in the Bible where when you read them, you're just like taken aback. Like, what? Why, why did that happen? So one of the stories that we're going to look at is a story um, of Achan. Achan uh, is an Old Testament character that we see in the book of Joshua. So this gives us context. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So to, best, to better understand this story of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, I went and looked up other stories of situations that are very similar to this to get some more insight into what happened in that situation and why to help give some clarity to this specific situation. So Aiken, let's give, uh, I'm going to give just a brief history and summation of where we're at with Joshua. Okay, so Old Testament, you have Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, uh, the Pentateuch, the law, the first five books of the Bible, um, Exodus, I skipped Exodus, sorry. The very next, next book after that is Joshua. Joshua uh, was the prophet who replaced Moses in being the leader of the Israelites. As you recall, for those uh, Bible students, um, Exodus is the story of Moses being used by God to relieve the Israelites, God's people, from the captivity in Egypt, right? So um, through the plagues, 
Uh, eventually, Pharaoh relents and allows the Egyptians to leave. Uh, you have the parting of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's chasing after them. Uh, then you have the wandering in the wilderness. For 40 years, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. It's basically, if you look at a map, it's northeast of Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula uh, is where this wandering happened. Then right at the very end of that, they come to the east side of the Jordan and they're going to go into the promised land. As you'll recall, uh, Abraham was given the Abrahamic covenant in which God specifically said, I will bless your people and I will make your descendants as numerous as, as the stars in the sky. And he outlines the promised land, this land flowing with, with rich, flowing with milk and honey that is the home of God's chosen people, the Jews. So they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses dies. Joshua, who is second in command, takes over. And at that moment, they cross the Jordan River and they start to take possession of the promised land. Well, you have to keep in mind that this land wasn't vacant. It wasn't like they were just coming in and it was just this beautiful land that no one had lived in. There were two, there were quite a few different people groups that were there. Um, you have uh, the Amorites and the Canaanites were two, Canaan is the, is the region, the Canaanites were there, but also the Amorites were there, were two people groups that when we look archeologically and we look historically, were pagan people that had horrible practices, um, sacrificing their children on the altar to Moloch um, and Baal worship. I mean, God chose to use Israel to pass his judgment on these very, very evil people. But keep in mind, and I'm belaboring this probably a little bit longer than I should, the promised land was occupied with people and God chose to use the Israelites to pass his judgment on those people so they needed to go into the land and subdue it and take it over. And the first big city they come to after they cross the Jordan River is Jericho. Now Jericho is this massive city that it's a fortified walled city. And the Israelites are freaking out because they're like, how can we do this? They're, they're, they're powerful people. We'll never be able to do it. And God says, I will deliver them in unto your hands. And you can read about it. You can read about it in, in Joshua and read this story about how the Israelites in this miraculous process end up winning the day and end up uh, taking over Jericho. The problem is God specifically says, you are to wipe out the entire people group, everybody, except for there is one prostitute and her family, and you can read the story, who helps out the Israelites, uh, and they are saved. But everybody else, God specifically says, wipe them out. Men, women, children, livestock, everything. Burn the city to the ground, and all of the money, all of the wealth, all of the gold, all the bronze, everything, put into the treasury. God had plans for it, but he specifically said, do not take any of the possession, that's mine. And the reason why he did that, he had further use for it down the road, but he wanted the Israelites to be set apart. They're coming into pagan land and he didn't want, God specifically wanted the Israelites, the Jews to be set apart because as they come into this land, he didn't want them to intermarry. He didn't want them to take on the pagan culture that was there and dilute their faith in God, in Yahweh. So specifically, he tells them, don't take any possession. 
Well, this is where the story of Achan comes in. So they went at Jericho, massive, awesome defeat. It's beautiful. Uh, They're triumphant and they're encouraged. Then the next town that they go to subdue and attack is Ai. And it's a small little village, small, itty bitty, itty bitty, nothing in comparison to Jericho. And the men that go and scout it out say, these guys are wimps, they're nothing, uh, it's not fortified, it's not, we can just take this easily. So they go and they're trounced. Israel gets defeated. Uh, this small little tiny uh, mission that is only a, a handful of troops go, 36 men die, and they're absolutely annihilated. And Joshua is praying to God like, what just happened? Why did this happen to us? Why did you bring us out of the wilderness only to have us be defeated by AI? This doesn't make any sense. Why why did this happen? And why don't you guys flip there with me? Um, We're going to go to Joshua uh, 7, um, specifically verse 10. Joshua, which is at the uh, early start of the Old Testament, Chapter 7, verse 10. So previous to this, Joshua's been praying, God, what's the deal? Why why were we so trounced? Why did these men die? Why, when we defeated Jericho so handedly, uh, do we turn around? Are we trounced by uh, AI? Why did this happen? And God says to him in verse 10 of chapter 7 of Joshua, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And then you can keep reading this full story. And what ends up happening is, is that you realize um, Achan, uh, picking up on verse 20, um, gets called out. Through a process, jo- uh, uh, Joshua uh, eliminates down through the tribes and through the families. And it's revealed that it's Achan's family. And he challenges Achan and says, uh, my son, give glory to the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. And in verse 20, Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So, very similar story in which um, you see a man of God who makes the decision, who is tempted and gives into that temptation and takes something that he shouldn't have taken and, and lies about it. Lies about it. He, he steals. Um, I mean, he's one of the soldiers. He goes in and he sees all this bounty and he takes all the, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing all of the silver and the gold and all of these different elements of wealth and putting them in the treasury and he pockets a few stuff. Now it's not a little bit of stuff. It's a lot of money that he takes here, uh, including a, a beautiful robe. He wants some nice threads. He wants to look beautiful. Um, and what ends up happening 
Achan, his immediate family, and his extended family all get killed because of this situation. And after this, God blesses Israel because they are united once again. There's no longer deceit among them, and they absolutely trounce on Ai. And trounce? I don't think that's a word. Trounce? Trounce is the word I was looking for. Um, it's, it's, uh, they annihilate him. And they continue to go on. And that, that is the story when you look at the books of history, uh, the old prophets, and you see uh, as Israel continues to go and possess the land, so long as the Israelites follow God and keep his commandment, they are blessed. So what do we learn from this and how can we apply it to uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira? And here's this question. Um, was the punishment that Achan received and the punishment that Ananias and Sapphira received equal to the, the sin? And the answer to that is yes. Um, the Bible makes it very clear that the punishment of sin, any sin, is death. Now, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we see God pass that judgment without even an opportunity for repentance. Uh, I would argue that, that I mean, as soon as it's presented to him, Ananias dies. As soon as Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, he keels over. Now, it might have been shock. It might have been just like whatever. It might have been natural causes that killed him, but it's clearly the Holy Spirit that, that pulled the trigger, so to speak. Ananias dies. And then Sapphira dies. So here's a question. And I was curious about this when I was reading through it. When I get to heaven one day, are Ananias and Sapphira going to be there? It's an interesting question. There's two possible answers, yes or no, right? Uh, the answer no would mean that they weren't actually believers. That they said the right words and they did the right things to be welcomed among the group, but they never actually had a faith that they stood on. They never actually believed in their heart in Jesus as their Messiah. And so they walked the walk and they talked the talk, but inside they weren't truly devoted to God. The Bible does say that when we get to heaven, there are going to be people there that we didn't expect to be there, that didn't say the right things or do the right things, but their heart was in the right place. But it also says that there are going to be people who you expected to be there who aren't. So are there people who go to church every single weekend and maybe even go to Wednesday night Bible studies and, and could even be serving on the worship team? Are there people who are going through the practices but aren't actually surrendering their life to God, surrendering their life to God on a day-to-day -day basis that won't make it into heaven? I am so grateful that it is not our responsibility to pass judgment. That's for Jesus and God alone to pass that judgment. And we don't know what is in a person's heart, but God does, and that's what God looks after. I hope that Ananias and, and Sapphira are in heaven because uh, I do believe that, that anybody should feel a little worried when you hear the story of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira because we're all guilty of the same sin that they are, of, of deceit, of saying a thing because you want to seem, you, you, you wanna, you, you're worrying about what other people think. So for example, with tithing, 
you know, when the tithe, the, the, the basket goes around, my wife and I give online. And, and there's a part of me that when it comes by, which, I mean, churches aren't doing that anymore because of the pandemic, the buckets in the back, which, you know, helps a little bit because I don't feel that pressure. But when it was going by, I wanted to be like, I give online, I give online, I gave online, I already did it. Like, I feel this pressure. That's not of God, that's of man. And it, the same thing, it's like, I want to like hold out, well, here's $500 cash that I'm putting in. Look at this, I'm flush, I'm putting it in the basket. That's totally of man. And th that sin that, that I feel of, of wanting to do something for the praise of other people is the exact same thing that Ananias and Sapphira had. So don't pass judgment on Ananias and Sapphira simply because we do the same stuff, right? So my hope is that their hearts were devoted to Christ. I don't know that. We don't know that. There's no way to know it. But that they screwed up and they were made an example of. So here's a question. Why did Achan die? Why was he stoned and his family stoned? Why were Ananias and Sapphira killed instantly by God? Why did God choose to do that? Because of how significant and important deceit is as something that cannot be tolerated in the early church. This is the brand new foundation of the church. And to have Ananias and Sapphira make the choice that they did, to have it be brought up by Peter, and to have then Ananias and Sapphira not punished would show the early church that, you know what? we can say one thing and do another. It's okay. And it's not okay. God has huge issue with that. And I would argue that that exists in the church today. But if God chose to pour out his judgment in the same way they did it on Ananias and Sapphira, <laughs> the pews would be empty. The churches would be empty because that judgment, we are all guilty of it. So the takeaway for this, in looking at this check, this, this section of Acts chapter 5, is to keep in mind how significant and important it is to be honest with God, because he sees everything. And to remember how sin starts as something small and it can weed its way into things and spread. A couple Bible verses. James 1.14. Each person is tempted. Everybody is tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Is it a sin to have desires that are sinful? No, it's not sin to have evil desires. We as humans are going to experience that. We are going to be challenged. We are going to be enticed. Every single day you are gonna be challenged with all sorts of different things. It might not, I mean, it, it might be lust, it might be greed, it might be pride. It, it might be gossip. Gossip is a sin. It might be something small. But that sin starts out as just a desire 
and it gives through and becomes a sin, and then it breeds and it spreads. Sin always causes more harm than you think it's going to. Achan, when he took the money uh, and the, the fancy threads, he was thinking to himself, he was rationalizing to himself, what harm is this gonna cause anybody? I mean, honestly, we, we've just plundered the entire town of Jericho. There's so much wealth here. No one's gonna notice. Everything's fine. This doesn't affect anybody else. It affected a lot of people. It, specifically, yes, it affected his family because they were, were forced to the, experience the wrath and the punishment of his sin, but it affected more than that. That initial uh, group of soldiers that went to defeat the town of Ai, well, they were all killed because of Achan's sin. It spreads. Same thing with Ananias and Sapphira. is is that Ananias made this decision, Sapphira followed suit, and as a result of that, they both had to deal with the repercussion of that sin. And I'd make that argument for us today is that the sin that you deal with, it's not your own. It will spread to other people. There, you know, there's things such as being addicted to uh, drugs. Drug addiction is one of those ones that everybody knows. It's obvious. It becomes something that everybody can see. And, and, and it's a horrible, awful thing. But there are sins that people don't know about, that are all just inside. And you might think that, oh, nobody knows this. Pride is one of those ones. Pride is probably the worst of the sins in my mind because it's so hard to see. The person that is truly prideful will not see that they're prideful because they're so prideful. It's a slippery slope. I need to look at my notes to remember where I'm going. Ah, another Bible verse for you. This is a good one. Numbers 32, 23. 3223 is how I remember that one. Numbers 3223. Be sure of this. Your sin will find you out. You might get away with it at first. Achan thought he got away with it. Ananias and Sapphira thought they got away with it. They probably both did receive some praise when they gave the money. They probably did receive some praise before the Holy Spirit talked to Peter and says, ah, there's deceit here. So you will likely get away with your sin for a time, but make no mistake, your sin will find you out. It will be revealed, and it does have an impact on everybody that's around you. The thing that I love is God's grace and his forgiveness. That's the important thing to keep in mind with both, uh, both of these stories that we look at today of situations in which God's wrath comes down so harshly is we must remember God's mercy and his grace and the fact that because of Jesus, the Lord would that no one would suffer and that no one should pay for the, the, the penalty of death for their sin. The Bible says that, that Jesus would separate our sin as far as the east is to the west for us and that Jesus remembers our sins no more. And so when you come to the cross and you, you kneel down and you're repentant, repentant is simply the idea of turning around, is, is that you admit what you did and you turn back to God and you admit your mistake and you are true and honest, you'll receive his forgiveness. Now, had Ananias said, you know what? We do feel led by the Spirit to sell this land, and we're going to sell the land, 
But we're gonna keep half of the money and we're gonna give half the money because that's, if they prayed about it and that's what they felt led to do and they were honest about it, I feel that that would be totally an honoring God because they, they prayed about it, they meditated on it and they made the decision together and then they were honest about it. And they didn't lie and, and say that they did this thing to get all the credit. Okay. We got a lot of ground to cover. I want to cover the rest of Acts chapter 5. So we are going to pick it up at Acts 5.12 in which we are going to see the fulfillment of the prayer in 4.29. So before I dig into 5.12, I want to read 4.29 again. Acts 4.29. This is a prayer that the early church is giving immediately after Peter and John are released from prison uh, and in, after they were on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, we talked about that um, last week, they were on trial before the Sanhedrin and they said that it is better for us to obey God as opposed to man. And the Sanhedrin says, okay, we're going to let you go, but do not perform any more signs and miracles and no longer proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and resurrection through the dead through Jesus. You got to stop saying that. And they leave and they rejoice and they come back and they share this time with their small group of believers and they pray as a group. And this is the, the conclusion of their prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they concluded that prayer, the earth shook. I'd say that was God saying, I'm with you. Go get them. You got this. So we see the fulfillment of this on verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to, used, used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So we see in Acts 3 and 4, Peter and John perform one miracle for one man who was born lame. And then from that, you see 2,000 people accept and believe and become part of the way of the early church. Then you see them go before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin says, nah, ah, ah, don't do this anymore. They pray boldly and they say, God, give us strength to keep going. And they continue. But now it's not just Peter and John. If you notice, it was the apostles. It was the apostles in general. It was the group that is now going out and performing signs and wonders in Jesus' name. And everyone is being healed. And, and word is spreading. It's not just Jerusalem now. People are coming from all over the region to go and to listen to the disciples and the apostles and this growing church. It's phenomenal. It's awesome to see the church growing in this way and the Holy Spirit answering that prayer with boldness. Now there's this question that I have. This verse in particular, verse 15, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. 
That's an interesting verse, right? So Peter, in chapter 3, he specifically says, why do you look at me as if I did this? This is through Jesus Christ that this is being done. I'm just a normal guy. And you're going to see this throughout Acts. There's going to be times in which they lift up Paul and they, they want to worship Paul. And Paul says, what are you doing? I'm just a normal guy just like you. Don't worship me, worship Jesus. So this, this line where people would put uh, uh, sick people out on mats, that when Peter would walk by, his shadow would be cast on them in hopes that they would be healed. Were they healed? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say that. But I did find an interesting verse. And I didn't find this to take pride. There's just a little note here and a reference um, that specifically points to, um, and I didn't write down what it was. I got to pull it up here. 15, uh, so verse 5, 15, Acts 19, 12 is my reference. So when you go to Acts 19, 12, you can look it up for yourself. Go to Acts 19, 12, and you'll see a situation in which uh, they take some garments that were worn by Paul, and through simply having the garments, people are healed because Paul wore them. But it specifically says there that they were healed. So I don't know. I, I would then, based on that verse, it tends to say that they were healed because of this. But the important thing is, is that it's in Jesus Christ's name. So I don't know. That was just a, a side thing. You can do some more study on it. And it's just an interesting verse that makes me pause and say, okay, well, so long as Peter is making it very, very clear that it's not me and it's not my shadow that's causing this. It's Jesus Christ working through me and it's through the name of Jesus Christ. And if they believed that and were healed, it's all good. Okay, um, picking it up on verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. This is the first of several jail breaks that we're going to see uh, that are spiritual, uh, meaning that an angel of the Lord comes and literally opens the jail cells uh, for the apostles to be freed. We're going to see this multiple times. This is the first of them. Uh, Go stand in the temple courts, the angel said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving in the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officials and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So clearly, the apostles who are teaching in Solomon's colonnade have a huge crowd. 
and the, the temple guards come and they're like, hey, um, your trial is supposed to be happening with the Sanhedrin. Would you mind coming with us to go talk to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Because um, they want to talk to you. And the apostle says, sure. Yes, we will go with you. They go voluntarily. But I love the fact that the, the, the guards are now fearing because so many people are following these, um, the apostles and their teaching. Verse 27, the apostles are brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty for this man's blood. I've spoken about this before. The Sanhedrin is their, their court system. Um, it, it would be the equivalent of our Congress and Senate and Supreme Court all wrapped into one. And the leaders, the 70 members, are the elite and the uh, most respected uh, of all Jerusalem, of all Israel, are these men. It was a great place of honor and highly respected. And this high priest is challenging them, saying, we specifically told you, but I can't help but hear a little toddler. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you fill him up Jerusalem. And he's like whining at this. And I say that now, and I'm able to see this and read it in that context, but still, their statements had a lot of weight to them based on who the, the high priest is and who the Sanhedrin is. Keep in mind, we just saw Jesus was crucified because of the verdict passed by the Sanhedrin. Keep that in mind. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than man, rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They're pleading with the Sanhedrin and saying, Jesus came specifically for the Jews, for Israel, for, so that they might repent and return to God. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin. Now I'm going to pause just real quick right there and talk just briefly about um, Gamaliel. Um, <laughs> this Pharisee was considered uh, to be so righteous and so good at following the law that he was actually nicknamed the beauty of the law. He followed it to such an extreme that in the Mishnah, and I've talked about this before, that's a Jewish text that's uh, an addition to the Torah. You have the Mishnah and the Talmud. Um, he specifically listed is that when he died, a part of the law died with him, that, that no one was able to follow the law so perfectly other than Gamaliel. Gamaliel also will come up later in Acts. We are going to see a Pharisee named Saul who is trained underneath Gamaliel um, as a Pharisee of Pharisees. So Gamaliel is very, very high esteem, um, uh, considered a teacher of many, 
at this point. So very respected man. He stands up um, in order that men, that the men, the apostles, be put outside for a little while. Okay, so he stands up. He says, "Put the guys outside." Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed. And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people to revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers scattered. That's not Judas Iscariot. Judas was a common name at that time. In fact, among the disciples, there were two Judases. Um, so this isn't Judas Iscariot. This was another man named Judas. The idea being is, is that he's giving two examples of people who came up and were thought to be somebody that were, um, they created uh, 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 uprisings, but they amounted to nothing. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. This is wise words. Very, very wise words uh, that we see from Gamaliel. And something to consider. You know... I say a lot of bad things about the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees. Um, we do see in the Bible, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, that we do see him um, as an individual and also um, uh, who owns the tomb. Um, oh, his name is escaping me. Joseph of Arimathea, uh, Joseph's tomb. Um, he also was, uh, I believe, uh, a member of the Sanhedrin um, that also, when Jesus was crucified, uh, goes to the burial um, to be able to anoint his body and put him in the tomb. So those are two individuals who are Pharisees and members of the Sanhedrin that realize that Jesus is the Messiah because the Jews were looking for the Messiah. So I have all these harsh words because Jesus had all these harsh words. Are all the Pharisees bad? No. Now we will see that Saul under Gamaliel um, is a horrible persecutor of the way of the early church and seeks out to kill early Christians. Um, but there's a lot of wisdom in the words that Gamaliel says here. Um, and the idea simply being is, is that if this is of God, you're not going to stop it. If it's of men, it'll fizzle up of its own accord, so just leave it be. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now we learn from, for you note takers, 2 Corinthians 11.24. Next to flogged, I have that just as a little dash as a reference. 2 Corinthians 11.24. In that, the apostle Paul is talking about uh, being whipped, being flogged. And he specifically says in there that the customary Jewish flogging of the Sanhedrin is 39 lashes. 40 minus 1 is what he says. So we know that they received 39 lashes. Uh, they were whipped 39 times, which 
no one wants to go through that experience. It wasn't a light experience to go through. They were tortured. They experienced physical harm, persecution, because of the name of Jesus at this point. And how do they respond? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Acts chapter 5 is a tough one because you see uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and it causes us to pause and to, to step back and be like, whoa, wow, that's really harsh. But then you see the second half of Acts chapter 5 in which you see um, the apostles go in front of the Sanhedrin and speak boldly. And even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, and the Sanhedrin say, you're not supposed to be doing this. You're not supposed to be teaching in Jesus' name, uh, proclaiming resurrection of the dead in Jesus' name, or performing these miracles. You are inciting riots. You are inciting the people to, to, to rise up. What were they afraid of? That whole system that I just described of the, the, the legal system of the Sanhedrin, of these elect Pharisees and Sadducees was all based on the Jewish system of the law, of following the law. And this new testament, this new covenant that they're proclaiming in the name of Jesus Christ, it says that anybody and everybody is able to talk directly to God and they don't have to go to a priest. They don't have to go to the temple to be able to connect with God. And further still, they're saying resurrection from the dead, forgiveness of sin because of the death that Jesus paid on the cross. This new system completely undermines everything that establishes the Pharisees and the Sadducees as being the elite and being respected. And so the reason why they're so upset is pride because they're afraid of losing their system. They want to have be, be held in high esteem in the exact same way that Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be held in high esteem. They were doing things contrary to God, deceitful, because they were more concerned with man than they were about the Holy Spirit. So as I wrap up, the takeaway from this is that we as believers today, we are part of this church that started way back then. And the question is, in your actions on a day-to-day -day basis, are you more concerned with what people will think or what God will think? Are you dishonest with others so that you look better? Do, do you say things that maybe you shouldn't? I'm praying for you. That's one of those ones that, that really, uh, I don't know. Um, it's a common phrase that people say, like, our, my, my, our, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. That's an interesting one because what you're saying right there, you're saying, I'm going to pray for you. And then you immediately receive, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And when done generally, that's great. One of the things that my, uh, my mother-in-law started doing this, I, I became a Christian back was when I was in college. 
And uh, I met my wife when I was in college right around that same time. And so a very good example of a Christian family uh, that I experienced are my in-laws, uh, my wife's parents. And I noticed something that uh, Marianne does that I absolutely love, and now I do this as well, is rather than saying the words, I'm going to pray for you, she'll say, well, can we pray for that right now? With boldness. And the first few times that she did this, I was like, whoa, uh, okay. Because I'll be like, uh, yeah, you know, this is going on, and, 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 you know, can you pray for this? And she would just be like, well, let's pray right now. And I would challenge, I think that's a good practice to have. And this is a tangent that I'm going off in, but it's something that I learned early on is, is that any opportunity that I have to stop, to pause, and to pray with someone, I'm going to take it. Because I'm, I'm not praying to get recognition from that person so they see me as a good person. When I hear that my friend is struggling with something, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to say, hey, can I pray with you right now? Because the point is not my recognition. The point is them surrendering that situation to God so that they can receive healing, so that they can receive whatever it is that God wants them to go through. It's not about me. It's about connecting them to Jesus. So that, that's a, a fun practice that I would try, is that whenever you come into a situation when someone's having a hardship, especially with a person that isn't a believer, that's kind of a fun, easy way in is that you can simply say, hey, man, I'm sorry that you're going through all this. Um, do you mind if I pray for you right now? And a person who isn't a Christian, who, who doesn't go to church, who might even be an atheist, more than likely they're going to say, uh, yeah. And they're going to see the compassion. And then they're going to listen to you surrender that situation before the creator of the world. And they're going to pause and be like, whoa, okay. Um, and that's a witness. That's an opportunity for you to have a witness. So as we wrap up, um, that's my takeaway for you guys is to make sure to just pray about it and see if there's things that you do that you are doing out of pride and out of hypocrisy. And maybe God wants you to challenge yourself to attempt to uh, stop doing those things and to just be honest with God, because he sees all of it anyway. If you're not a believer, and, and if you're listening to this, and it, it's itching, at, at the, it's, it's almost as if um, there, there's part of you that, that wants to be a part of this, wants to believe, it's very easy. Uh, the submission, it, all that it is, is repentance. It is simply saying, I can't do this. I'm not perfect. I don't want to put on this fancy show. I don't want to say one thing and do another. I just want to get closer to God. I want him to guide my path. It's very easy to become a believer. All you have to do is believe in your heart and speak out loud that Jesus is your Messiah and that he died for your sins and you're forgiven. And I'm going to pray that right now. I've done this before, and I'm going to continue to do it because it is the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. And I would challenge you to pray this prayer with me right now. Why don't you guys bow your heads? If you feel that nudging right now, that's the Holy Spirit telling you to pray this prayer. So pray with me. Lord God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I am broken. 
I need you in my life, Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made on the cross to take the penalty for my sin. I invite you into my life. Help me to follow you day by day. Thank you for saving me. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for these new believers and for the old believers. And, and, and that you, I pray, Lord, that you would come alongside them and that you'll lift them up and you'll give them uh, encouragement and stability and that you will start a fire in their heart that would not be quenched, that they would seek after you. I pray, Lord, that you will surround them with believers that will help them in this walk, in this path. For that person that's been a believer for 20 plus years, Lord, I pray that you would rekindle that fire, that they daily would seek after you, and that we would see from this example that we see from Ananias and Sapphira and from Achan, Lord, that Anything that is in our lives that is sinful, that you would point it out to us, that we might repent of that sin and turn to you. We pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to this Bible study. Next week, we are going to see um, the beginning portion. We're going to see the church is growing and a logistical problem that's happening is, is that the disciples are not able to do all the things that they need to do because the church is growing so drastically. So you're going to see an administrative type uh, role happen in the early church of expansion. Then we're going to see Stephen. And in Acts 6 and 7, we're going to be looking at uh, Stephen. And in Acts chapter 7, we are going to hear an amazing sermon given by Stephen that is a phenomenal history lesson for the Jews. And at this point, as we're going through this, keep in mind, everything that's happening right now uh, is all geared towards the Jews. Acts will shift and we're going to see the Gentiles. And as you recall, from a Jewish perspective, you're either Jewish or you're not. And if you're not, you're a Gentile or you're a Jew. Right now, the apostles are all speaking towards the Jews. And we're going to see Stephen give an amazing message. Um, so hang with me and uh, have a phenomenal week. I love you guys, and I'll see you next week.